1: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Natalie Boots, the author of the award-winning book, Islands of Heritage, Conservation and Transformation in Yemen published by Stanford University Press in 2018, and recipient of the MES Book Award in 2019, which is sponsored by the American Anthropological Association Middle East Section. Natalie Birds is an assistant professor of anthropology at New York University Abu Dhabi. By discussing this book, we will explore an often overlooked part of the Indian Ocean world, that of the island of Socotra, between the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa, it is the largest island of Yemen's Socotra Archipelago, and one of the most uniquely diverse among the most marginalized regions of Yemen. It was promoted recently for its outstanding global value as a UNESCO Natural World Heritage Site. Islands of Heritage share Socotra's stories to offer the first exploration of environmental conservation, heritage production, and development in an Arab state. Speaking from Vermont, welcome, Natalie, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today.
2: Thank you so much, Ahmed. Thanks for having me, and it's really a pleasure to, to be on this podcast.
1: Can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study?
2: Sure. Uh, so I'm, I am I grew up both in the Netherlands uh, for a couple of years, and then I moved to New Jersey, and I got a BA in history at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and ended up going to graduate school at Princeton university. So near where I'd grown up, uh, when I studied in college, I was a history major, uh, interested in Eastern Europe primarily. And, uh, and so I did a lot of, uh, travel in that area, but, and, and actually hadn't really taken, I had taken one introductory anthropology course, but had not thought about that as, as something that I would end up pursuing and then after college, I ended up um, traveling for three years. I actually biked from Prague to uh, to the border of South Africa, and spent um, two of those three years were, were traveling through uh, the Middle East from East Africa, uh, you know, Eastern Europe through Turkey and then down East Africa, and then uh, and a year in the middle, I worked for the International Rescue Committee in a Rwandan refugee camp in Tanzania. So. I say all that because that's when I became interested in working on refugees uh, and or with refugees, but I also shifted my interest from um, Eastern Europe to the Middle East and East Africa, uh, as well as wanting to learn Arabic and and also became very interested in cultural anthropology because I'd spent so much time during that trip staying with different families along the way and and really kind of wanting to think about how to write about things like cultural diversity and, and, um, and difference. And, uh, so this was, um, this was kind of a formative experience. And I, I came back from that, spent a couple of years working and then went to graduate school in anthropology and then shifted towards trying to study Arabic.
1: Fascinating. Uh, who did you work with? Do you have any mentors?
2: Oh yeah. So, well, so I went, so Princeton is a, is a a powerhouse of a department. And I, um, it's, it's, although it's relatively small. So, uh, because of that, I, I actually kind of count everybody who was faculty there at Princeton at the time as my mentors, but I worked especially closely with my advisor, of course, Carolyn Rouse, who's still there, uh, and, uh, has been inspiring all these years. Uh, and also my dissertation committee, James Boone, Carol Greenhouse, and Larry Rosen, many of whom I had the pleasure of seeing this past year when I was, um, a fellow at Princeton, uh, and just, um, from this in 2019 to 2020. So, uh, and all of them are such profound, inspiring thinkers and individuals that often when I, when I'm writing articles today or or chapters, I still find myself thinking back to, uh, to kind of ways that people like Carol and Jim and Larry and and Carolyn would, would think and present their ideas and the kind of, uh, energies and enthusiasms they had for their own projects.
1: Great. Um, the book is really rich, and I would like to start talking about it. Um, so your earlier work uh, was on deportation, which you published in your co-edited volume with Nicolas de Di- Genova, entitled The Deportation Regime, Sovereignty, Space, and the Freedom of Movement, published in 2010 by Duke University Press. So how that project on deportation led your recent book on islands of heritage? How did that uh, book idea develop. What was the research process like, and if you can share the writing experience?
2: Sure. Yeah, those are those seem on the outset like two very different kinds of projects, and uh, and in some ways they are, but uh, they kind of developed. I had a connection when I when I when I made that shift. So I began studying Arabic in Yemen in 1999, and uh, that's when I first heard about Sukutra. But it was very difficult to visit there because. Uh, during the monsoon. The monsoon season occurs in the summers, which is when I was going to Sana'a to study Arabic. Uh, and it seemed uh, like a very difficult time to go. And in fact, actually, uh, as I'll probably talk about a little bit more later, Secutra was cut off. Uh, people could not reach Sukutra by Dow, by sea, until 1990, during those monsoon periods, because the seas are too rough and there are no natural harbors. And it was only in 1999 that the airstrip was lengthened so that you could have flights going year round. So when I first heard about Sukutra, it did sound like this place that was somehow, you know, quite remote and cut off from the mainland. Uh, and so I, uh, I knew about it, but I was actually uh, started, uh, I was, my first interest was in working on refugees, return migrants and deportees in, uh, in Yemen and the Horn of Africa. And so I'd begun this project on Uh, in fact, I was actually going to Somalia to meet, uh, to kind of think about the connection between Somalia and Yemen, because I had been talking to a lot of Somali refugees in Yemen. And that's where I met people who'd been deported from the United States, which is what led to that project. So it kind of started in Yemen, brought me to Somaliland. And then I thought I would continue doing work, um, in either Somaliland or on the coast uh, of Yemen with these deportees and, and return migrants and refugees all living in the same area, but when I went to Yemen to for a longer period to start that work, it was in 2003, and uh, this was right at the time of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and so we were actually prohibited from leaving Sanaa, from leaving the capital, because the U.S. embassy, but also the Yemeni government was afraid of protests and a backlash against U.S. citizens, and so I, I felt a little bit stuck. Um, in Sanaa, but also thinking that I couldn't get to Hodeidah or the Red Sea area at that time. And the one place it seemed that it was permissible to travel, that we could get travel permissions to go to was Sukutra because it, uh, again, there was the sense that it was quite removed from uh, at least the political events on the mainland. So I went there in March 2003 for two weeks with my partner and we spent the time uh, kind of watching uh, the invasion of, of uh, Iraq unfold. And and it was really intrigued me was going into, you know, not just watching this in cafes, on televisions, but going into the countryside and listening to radio, like BBC Arabic with Sukutrans who were following this very closely. And then thinking about Sukutrans engagement with the region from a distance, but what all these c- conflicts happening You know, in in, in places that are more typically studied, uh, like Egypt or you know Iraq and Syria, what they looked like from uh, from peoples so far at the margins of the region. Uh, So it was during this. So I was interested in that, but it's during this period that I also learned about this environmental conservation project that was happening on the island, and I heard about Sakutrans who had been deported from the island uh, to the Arab Gulf. Now, deported is the word that people were using, but really it was a form of banishment of women who had been accused of witchcraft and then sent on any Dao passing by, and they would end up going to what was then Oman, the Trucial States, uh, and um, and settling there. So I was drawn to these unusual deportation narratives of so-called or alleged or accused witches who'd been deported and thinking that this is a different way to think about deportation, as well as the fact that I, um, I started thinking about a shift because uh, when I did go back to Somaliland in 2004, uh, things were a little bit uh, – un- um, it, it was a little bit dangerous to be there at that time period. So uh, between a mix of kind of moving around the area because of different uh, uh, precautions and events that were happening – uh, that's what led me to this field site in Socotra.
1: Listening to you and reading your book, I couldn't help but to think about the difficulty of such a site, especially given the current pandemic. So, uh, drawing from your experience, um, do you have any uh, advice about um, conducting field work and researching challenging sites such as Yemen? And do you have an, uh, you know, like uh, insights that you can share with uh, aspiring scholars who want to study similar sites?
2: Yes, it's you know, I, I haven't um the pen pand- I have not actually really started trying to do field work since the pandemic started. My last uh field I mean, besides being in contact with people, but my last field trip was actually in January, just before it broke out when I went back to Djibouti. Um but I do, I think because Yemen was already, I mean, in 1999, when I first went, I traveled around the entire country on my own and shared taxi. And it seemed that it was very open. And then with uh, each year, I mean, and it was in the early 2000s, it was quite uh, possible to do fieldwork there. And there were a number of anthropologists, but by the mid 2000s, it it started to become more difficult. And, uh, and so already in that first project, I was uh, as I just mentioned, I kind of positioned myself. Um, I kind of moved between Somaliland, Yemen, Sakutra. I've now recently, uh, in, in the past couple of years, have gone back to Somaliland. So instead of thinking about um, one particular topic and one particular site, uh, I kind of by circumstance. But I think this is something that I would now advise scholars to. Is I really was thinking about working within a broader region that would allow me to move from one part of the region to the other region as needed, and so I now see my 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 field, so to speak, of research, where I where the kind the places where I try to ask similar questions, being Yemen and the Horn of Africa, and and this lets allows me to go back and forth, um, as necessary. And to you know, and and in some cases, this means moving between themes. So I started off wanting to work on refugees, and and worked and did some and some work on deportation. Then went to environmental projects and transformations. Now I'm actually working uh, have a project on refugees again, but I see this my next project more related to uh, forced movement. Uh, because of climate change. So climate refugees. So these even things that seem like very disparate projects end up coming together. Uh, And so I think that, you know, I guess the main takeaway is to build in a kind of flexibility in terms of the research topic and site uh, that allows you, you know, so you may have to make radical shifts at the moment, uh, or move from one place or, or topic to another. But then actually, over time, uh, it, you know, this, in a sense, this has actually been, now that I'm going back and working on refugees, Yemeni refugees in the Horn of Africa, I have the benefit of having already spoken to a lot of Somali refugees in Yemen in the early 2000s. So it gives me a longer arc in terms of thinking about this project. So if people do have to abandon something, um, midfield or, 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 shift to something because of security developments or now because of the pandemic, uh, it's you know hopefully that'll end up actually being a benefit because you can fold that work into different projects at a different time that gives you this this larger arc or longer angle of working in the field and and i guess you know and and with that i suppose uh you know the real the real key is how first of all it's hard to come up with good research questions and so this is really what we're trying to do right what is a good research question but also how can we ask this question in several kinds of ways and in several kinds of environments. Uh, and, and, you know, now one way is obviously by following people as they move to different places. And so a topic like refugees allows for this more easily. But also during the pandemic, um, we're all learning how to do, how to have schooling on Zoom and things like this. So I think we're really going to be learning how to do a lot of our research through through Zoom and as well as other social media as well. Uh, I, as an anthropologist, I think that initial um, ability to be there is very helpful for having uh, connections and contacts with people. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel more confident uh, continuing fieldwork and interviews via Zoom and other ways with people I already had the opportunity to meet in person. Uh, and then once those connections are established, then I think it's, you know, it doesn't make so much of a difference about whether I can actually Uh, meet them again in person or not. Although that, of course, is always uh, still ideal.
1: Uh, Definitely, yeah. This is really useful. Um, And and, and I've spoken to some anthropologists in the past, and they told me that they intended initially to work on Saudi Arabia, but it wasn't accessible at the time, so they shifted to Yemen. And now (laughs) the other way around (laughs) is happening. Um, So the book consists of six chapters with an introduction and a conclusion. Uh, in the introduction, uh, I would like to ask you, how does your book contribute to the way we uh, historically and anthropologically approach insularity as an ocean and island studies in, in the Indian Ocean world? Can you introduce Sukhutra uh, as a case study for approaching these questions?
2: Yeah, well, so as you, so, you know, you gave a, a, a very good introduction to Sukhutra. Um It's a uh, I had never known about, as you, as you say, some people may have never heard about this island. I had actually didn't know anything about it until I first went to Yemen. And when I show, when I was sitting with some Socotra some friends at one point looking at a map. And when you look at a two-dimensional map of the world and see that Sukutra is actually right in the middle of this, you know, a typically kind of depicted um, map with the United States, North America on the left and Asia on the right. Um, then this is a, you know, it's, 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 consider themselves very central, uh, in the world, their location. And it is actually, uh, the second largest island in the Western Indian Ocean, the fifth largest island in the Indian Ocean, uh, uh, um, Sukutra Island. And then of course, there's these, uh, three other smaller islands that make up the archipelago. So it is one of the most, it's also incredibly diverse in terms of um, its endemic flora and, and also some fauna more than a third of its plant species are not found anywhere else in the world and for this reason it was also recognized as a natural world heritage site in 2008. But even now uh, there are it's it, it a is presented especially by journalists and travelers as completely isolated remote forgotten an island that they need to discover and you know, and I, I can understand why during this period, when there's very little tourism, people might think that they've discovered this island. But it's been represented this way uh, consistently for for decades, and and in some cases, when you go back to uh, to literature, kind of British travelers in the 19th century, the same kinds of ways of talking about Socotra are still present today. Uh, I think in part, this has a lot to do this sense of Sukutra being this depiction of Sukutra being completely isolated and a remote as if also insular has a lot to do with this seasonal monsoon uh, during which uh, either it was kind of seasonally secluded until, uh, until the expansion of the airstrip in 1999, or it's just a difficult time for people to travel there. But it's precise, but what and what would happen during the monsoon period also is that Sakutrens, it was a very difficult time for Sakutrens because they had to stockpile food before that because Daws could no longer stop at the island and bring food to them, or um, you know, or or they uh, uh, suffered sometimes drought and and many periods of famine. So the very fact that Sakutrens ended up feeling so secluded during this monsoon period actually underscores. How much it was dependent on and tied into a regional food network—that is far from being um, these uh, self, you know, dependent, self-reliant, uh, pastoralists on this island who uh, who are isolated from the rest of the world. Sakotrans were very much uh, dependent on the connections through Dao um, travel and trade uh, of people from around the Indian Ocean. So uh even be- especially before actually it's kind of um more recent integration into the into the united into the yemeni nation state so uh in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s i mean if they were uh they were very dependent on um getting maize and uh uh from the horn of africa and on dates and uh, uh and other foods being brought in from the arab gulf and a lot you know so and they were also exporting uh, food products to these regions. So there, Sukutrans actually have uh, a very long connection, historical connection to the African coast, as well as the Arab Gulf, even more than they did to mainland Yemen for much of that period. And so I think what this example uh, presents to us is what, what I tried to do in my book, at least, is really focus on these connectivities. So I um, I was very interested in how Sukutrans Thought of themselves as being connected to a place like the United Arab Emirates, and this was before I moved to the UAE myself. In fact, I I was only hearing about I had never been to the UAE, and I was only hearing about the UAE uh, through securans. Who uh, sometimes, when they were singing lullabies to their children going to sleep, they would sing about the cars being brought to them from Ras Al Khaimah, for instance. And and it was very the UAE was very present uh, in the way that securans talked about. Um, their relatives being there and in terms of the kind of aid and assistance they got from these relatives. And the first time I went to the UAE, to Abu Dhabi, where I ended up, I, and I mentioned this because I'm now located in uh, in Abu Dhabi, not currently, but normally because I teach for New York University in Abu Dhabi. The first time I went was in 2005 to actually trace down uh, one of the Sukkutrans who had been uh, accused of witchcraft and therefore left the island and ended up there. So... Uh, so had so I, my book really tries to focus on these connections to the broader Arab Gulf um, and then also uh, think about the historical connections to East Africa. Uh, also to point out that a, an island like Sukutra I'm sure you know many other islands as all these other islands in the Ine ocean can be somewhat secluded or remote, in a seasonal or even in a cyclical sense, or even today during periods of war, uh, but they're never insular. They're never disconnected. I mean, they're, and so uh, this is really kind of I was writing against this message that you get from uh, journalistic and traveler accounts of this uh, island that had been untouched by any outside influences or as if untouched by modernity uh, in general.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh that takes us to the question you pose in the introduction which is how heritage a nominally con- uh, conservative and devour and revolution a nominally transformative and devour can be uh, can be connected how does the sagotra case connect uh, these two uh, endeavors
2: so i i started documenting um uh when i i first i i started my fieldwork there in 2004 when i was living there And I was documenting a lot of conservation efforts, um, really between 2004 and 2010, that were both in terms of uh, the way a series of projects tried to conserve uh, Sukutra's natural heritage, that is the environment, but also uh, local Sukutran efforts to conserve their cultural heritage. and at that time it was very much about uh, conservation and and in a in a somewhat conservative sense so succutrans so were talking there were there were there were a lot of debates that they were engaged in terms of what should and should not be included in their cultural heritage and who would have the authority to produce that that is would it be is heritage something that is defined by international experts uh, because there were a lot of researchers and experts who would come to the island? Is it defined by the state, by bureaucrats? Uh, can the Sukhutran islanders define it and author uh, their heritage? But then if, or or is it the emigrants from the the people in the diaspora? And if it is the islanders, then is it just, is heritage just what the Sukhutran Bedouin pastoralist Arabs think it is? Or to what degree are the African Sukhutrans included in this? This was all, this was, a lot of this was being, debated in um, in kind of questions about what should and should not be included in their heritage. How do you account for uh, what we today call negative heritage like the fact that Sukutrans, uh had believed in witchcraft and had banished witches or that they had uh, worked through um, kind of sorcerers and witch doctors because there were no doctors at the time on the island. So um, so it was it was a little, you know, people were trying to make sense of this heritage. Uh, but it was a little bit more conservative in its outlook. Uh, at the same time, I saw that it was, uh, giving Sukutrins kind of a, a sense of empowerment because one of the main things is that, 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 um, that I was hearing from a lot of Sukutryans is they'd grown up ashamed to speak their language. And, and so once, uh, Sukutri, which is an, a Semitic language, it's, it's its own language, different from Arabic, distinct from Arabic. And when they started thinking about their language as heritage and and thinking about heritage as something that had to be preserved and promoted and celebrated, then they also started thinking about a right to to their language. And this gave them a sense of empowerment. And so over the years, I saw this uh, promotion and mobilizing of heritage becoming um, more empowering and then dovetailing with the demonstrations at the time of the revolution, which also brought Sukutrans like Yemenis, like Egyptians and Syrians and, you know, many, many people across the Arab, around the Arab world to the streets with a new sense of being able to, to speak out and to, to, uh, make demands upon the state. And so, uh, so the way I connect these or the way the Sukutra case connects these, actually what I should say is it was connected for, uh, for me by one of my main interlocutors who was uh, organizing poetry festivals and political protests in the same day at the same time. And when I asked him about these different events that he was doing, he's the one who said, well, they're all part of the same work, right? So becoming uh, mobilizing one's heritage to actually uh, feel proud of one's identity and to be able to feel that one can determine one's identity became part of that sense of, uh, taking to the streets and actually trying to demand and effect change, and so I, 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 I guess they were really connected through the sense of empowerment that people got from from both aspects. And in that sense, the heritage work became, uh, as I argue later on, and I could talk about a little bit later, it became in that sense revolutionary because it allowed Zacutrens to think of themselves in new
0: ways. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: How did you pursue uh, this connection? What were some of the sources you draw on? and Methodologies uh, you deployed uh, in researching and writing Islands of Heritage?
2: Yeah, I started. So my first, I I, I started with pretty much conventional anthropological fieldwork. So I lived on the island from two thousand and f- like fall two thousand four to beginning two thousand and six, uh, and a lot of this was kind of uh, very. It included participant observation, um, hanging out with people and taking part in daily activities. Like I taught English uh, to seventh graders in the school. I would spend a lot of time in the campsite, uh, kind of behind the scenes. So in the kitchen, watching Sukutrans interact with tourists who are new to the area there. I was, I should say, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. I was living in a protected area. All of Sukutra had become a protected area, but it had nature sanctuaries uh, and, or also called protected areas within it. So I was living in a newly established, uh, uh, protected area on the island. And, uh, and so I was taking part in these daily activities and chores, but also anytime, time, uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, as people from the environmental conservation projects would come to the protected area to teach the Sukutrans about the environment. I was there during all of these meetings, and meetings of the local association for conservation and development. Uh, I also did unstructured interviews with my neighbors and other people living in the area, collected life histories. And, and that's probably where I, I would have stopped had I not realized at one point that uh, I had at, at one point I was hearing about a poetry cycle or debate that was happening. And it was, it was a. There had been a long forty-five-minute oral poem that had been sent from Oman to Sukutra by cassette tape, that had been so incendiary that it caused a fight in the streets of Hadibo. And then, um, and this was a poet who lived in Oman, a Sukkurian poet. And then poets on the island responded through poetry that they also sent back by cassette tape. So there were these uh, poems being sent back and forth that were that were also basically a debate about what to do about negative aspects of the past. And in this particular case, it was about the fact that the Sultan's family, uh, had been executed in 1974 and, uh, and people are trying to understand how to, uh, how to commemorate or reconcile this. And so I, when I, I, I sat down with some Sukhutran poets and they helped me translate it because I was operating primarily in Arabic. So they helped me translate from uh, Sukutri to Arabic, and then I translated it into English. And I realized that all this time I'd been trying to understand what people were thinking about these transformations on the island, uh, not just in terms of this new environmental conservation project that was happening, but the various transformations the island had gone through from a sultanate to a socialist, uh, uh, being governed as a military enclave by the socialist, uh, state of South Yemen to now being part of unified Republic of Yemen and now opening up to tourism. Uh, people were timid to talk about their views about these transformations, but not in poetry. So I felt that a lot of the political debates, or I, I came to understand that a lot of the political debates were happening in poetry and that I had to take that into account as well. So I began, uh, uh sitting with friends and and having and they translated a lot of poetry for me uh, so that I could follow some of these debates I also then studied uh, the project documents of um, a successive uh, there were four different integrated conservation development projects that that operate on the island starting 1997 going through 2013 and then actually a little bit later so I studied those and then I after I, Left, so I left the island after – I was no longer living there after 2006, but I continued to go back and visit almost annually until 2013 was my last visit there. And, um, and so I kept uh, you know, having these shorter periods of field work. I also met with Sukutrans after that in Bahrain, Oman, in Abu Dhabi, in Europe. And, uh, and then I, what I added to that was also studying the colonial archives. So Sukutra had been a British protectorate from the 1880s to 1967, the British occupied Sukutra during World War II. So there's rich record of all the Dow traffic, the grain markets, the so-called deportations, the British protector the officers took note of all of these, um, these things, which kind of gave me a data to supplement the oral histories that I was collecting from the Secutrans. So my book draws on this, Um, You know, my observations being there, but also uh, Sukutran's observation debates that are occurring through poetry, as well as uh, this historical material uh, to supplement uh, people's memories of the past.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, As somebody who works on environmental history, I really appreciated uh, your engagement with questions related to the environment in this book. Um, so in the introduction, uh, you have uh, an interesting take on the nature cultural divide and the way we study heritage making. Can you share some of that? <laughs>
2: yeah Well, so there a number of scholars have rightly critiqued uh, this idea that there's something like natural heritage and cultural heritage, or even the distinction between tangible and intangible. And this goes into broader uh, scholarly, academic uh, critiques of the divisions between humans and animals and things, right? And so, uh, as a scholar, as an academic, I think that I, you know, I, I have no critique of their critique. I think that um, the this there's really a false binary between things like natural heritage and cultural heritage. Uh, however, um, I I also think it's easy for us to kind of think theoretically about the fact that, uh, you know, we, as scholars, we always like to, uh, to disturb binaries and to undo them and, and to kind of claim that these are, that these are, you know, uh, the, the abstract distinctions, but on the ground as heritage is, is, is produced and defended in practice, these separations continue to exist and so we need to ask ourselves who is making the claims for what counts as heritage and to what ends. So, heritage making is inherently a political process. And for someone like me to say, well, really, you know, there's no, you know, we shouldn't have these distinctions between natural and cultural heritage. Uh, we shouldn't have natural world heritage sites and cultural world heritage sites. And, and in fact, UNESCO has also recognized that. And so you now have something, you, there's actually a category for mixed. Uh, sites that have elements of natural heritage and cultural heritage. Uh, But for people to this kind of erasure that makes a lot of sense, theoretically can actually, uh, we have to think about the effects of that on the ground. So in the case of Sukutra, um, Sukutrans were actually trying to insist that there was something they, they did have a cultural heritage And that that is something that they, because it was their language that uh, very few non-Sakutrans speak and their poetry, that this is something that they had the right to define, to author, to promote, to present. And in, in a way as kind of a defense of, um, of what a kind of a, a, a green imperialism of, or a global environmentalism. So what would happen on the island, it would be very easy for people to come in and say, you know, uh, this this natural heritage, your environment, your biodiversity is is so important. It's one of the most important botanical, has the most botanical diversity of the world, of the island groups, one of the most important island groups. And it's the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean. And therefore, we are going to come in and tell you how to conserve this and how to protect this and why this is important for the world. And so there is a bit of a colonial imperialistic move in that where. So, Kutrans are then not part of that process, and so for them it was quite important to say, okay, you know. So instead of saying, look, and and with that we'll take we'll 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 incorporate your cultural heritage too, and so we'll say that all of this heritage really belongs to all of humanity, and it's important for everybody. But then, who who are the in that kind of move? Who are the people who become the experts? It ends up being. Uh, people with degrees, or who are being, uh, you know, consultants for large, uh, for UN programs, and so in that sense, having dis- being able to have these distinctions on the ground of well, no, wait, this is our cultural heritage, and this is something that we want to have authority over, uh, can be a very necessary and, def- and productive defense. And so, as much as theoretically, I would agree that. Uh, absolutely that um you know that these are these are these binaries of nature and culture are problematic uh we we really have to be attentive to the the power claims that are that are occurring when people you know the uh the power differentials that are happening when people make these claims
1: mhm and interestingly, uh, biodiversity also in many cases coexists with cultural diversity. And uh, so Qatar is such a case uh, where you have both of them at the same time, which is very interesting. Um, in chapter one, hospitality in unsettling times, uh, you make a familiar cultural value that we all know if we work on Arabia, I think. Uh, hospitality to make it unfamiliar in a very interesting way. Uh, So in this chapter, you ask how the unprecedented opening of Sikhotra uh, gave rise to a crisis of hospitality, a long-held cultural value. So can you tell us about the tension between this value and the changes that were brought by the nation-state and the transformation from, as you said, a militarized enclave to a national protected area?
2: Yes. uh, So, yeah, hospitality... There's been so much written about hospitality, especially you know for people working in in the Arab world the Middle East, uh, but um, and it's something that Securin's talked about a lot. And so this is the this is this is kind of the what you know as an anthropologist you go somewhere thinking you're going to work on one thing and then you realize okay well what is what are people actually talking about? And so, uh, but they were. The people, my, my hosts, for instance, um, we talking a lot about hospitality, very possibly because they were given, you know, they were not really, uh, I mean, they were asked, uh, gently. I don't know if they, how much they felt that they could say no, but, uh, they were suddenly called upon to host me, uh, <clears throat> for the year, but they, um, Sukutran's, uh, really valued karam, karama, hospitality, generosity. And would tell stories again and again, these kind of mythical archetypical stories of the person who gave away all that he had. And of course, in, in the, it was it was always men, almost always men in this case. Uh, and, and the tensions of the if you had unlimited hospitality, that it actually reduces the ability of the person to be a good host, because if you give away everything that you have, then you have nothing left to give and then you can no longer be a host. And so there's this paradox of hospitality that is, uh, of course, has also been well theorized by Jacques Derrida. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can read Derrida and, 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 uh, and think a lot about the paradox of, of the law of hospitality versus the laws of hospitality, or as Andrew Shryock writes about in his work uh, in Jordan, you can also hear very much the same kind of uh, debates about, you know, questions about this paradox happening from people who are, who are engaged in this, who, who, who hold this up as this ideal for themselves being, uh, you know, having unlimited hospitality and being very generous hosts. So during, um, what happened was there, I was hearing a lot of stories about, uh, people who were so generous that they would give and give and give. And, and in part it's because also as a pastoralist society, uh, People would not, you know, their, their their meals were somewhat limited to the produce of livestock, so milk and uh, some grains and ghee, and people would only really eat meat when uh, they would slaughter some of their livestock if there was a guest coming by. So uh, hospitality was also very significant because that was a time that uh, people would actually kind of feel that they really had a real, <clears throat> sorry, a full meal. So during, um, and, and so it was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was preserved for times of weddings or also times when you had important guests coming through. Now, during the socialist period, the island, it was harder for people from outside the island. So the the relatives who had gone abroad to visit, um, very few were able to return and uh, but then in the late 1990s, early 2000s, this is when the island uh, opened up, so to speak, to tourism, but also to uh, guests coming back, uh, to relatives coming back from the Gulf to visit. And so, in fact, the sakutrans found themselves with suddenly having too many guests and too many people to host. And so living up to their ideals of generosity and hospitality became very taxing because you know, it's one thing to think that if any stranger comes to your house, you're going to run out and slaughter a goat for them, when that only happens every couple of months or a few times a year. And it's another thing to try and live up to that when you suddenly have visitors from abroad or tourists coming by again and again and again. And so, uh, Securans felt that they were no longer able to; they could no longer afford to to be this kind of consummate host. But if they were not living up to these ideals, then who were they or who had they become? So this is where um, this value of hospitality became kind of a crisis of, you know, who are we now? If in fact we are not as generous, we have more, but we are less generous. And so what does that mean for us in terms of our, our own conception of ourselves?
1: hmm. Uh, and that takes us to the second chapter, Hungering for the State. Uh, in this chapter, uh, you have very interesting conceptualization of the island's history, as that one governed by uh, through food, famine, and fear. Um, if you can elaborate more on, on these three connections.
2: Yeah, I was, um, so I was interested in, <coughs> excuse me, Sikaja's transformation to a World Heritage Site. And so to think about that, I also wanted to look back at other transformations that had happened. So I I interviewed a lot of, uh, spoke to a lot of elderly uh who had lived through f- these four distinctive states. So people who were in their 50s and 60s had lived during the period of the Sultanate uh, until 1967, which had also been a British protectorate. They had experienced the Socialist uh, People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. Uh, <clears throat> they were now, uh, of course, part of the Unified Republic of Yemen And we're now experiencing kind of what at the time seemed like a de facto state of a new UN supported environmental conservation project. And each of these, um, but all of these states, so as different as they were from a sultanate to a socialist state, to, uh, a more kind of, uh, neo-patrimonial state to environmental protections, um, They had seemed so different, but there was this one thread that ran through people's experience of all of them. And in part, it was because every one of these states was experienced as a kind of a stranger. So there were always these stories of arrival of this state. When, When the sultans were here, even the sultans were seen as having come from outside from Mahra. So the sultans were there and then the British arrived and then the socialists arrived and then the, you know, so... The, the state was constantly seeming to arrive in these different guises um, somewhat, you know, at times even as strangers. And so when people talked about the sultans uh, and that period, they spoke a lot about they, what they remembered was how um, that they were afraid of the sultans because the sultans would uh, travel through the island to meet out punishment. So if the sultan was coming to visit you in a, in the countryside, it was often to, um, uh, for instance, to amputate someone's arm if there had been theft or things like that. So people, it was, you know, they were they were afraid of the sultans. The sultans taxed people uh, uh, a, a kind of a 10 percent tax on on their food and livestock. Um, but also because of hospitality and, and, and generosity and power, when the sultans uh, arrived, that was a time that you would have a lavish feast for them. So. Uh, this was, so their memories of the sultanate period were, and, and a number of circutrians had lived through several quite um, severe famines. So they thought about this time of food shortage and famine, but then also, and in these periods of shortage of uh, food shortage and famine, they could then go, in, at least some of them could go to the sultan's house and be fed by the sultan instead. So there was kind of a reciprocity of, of expectations that, of course, when the sultan um, travels throughout the island, they would put on a lavish feast. And then when there was no food left, uh, they would try to, you know, be fed by the sultan. So the relationship with the sultans were mediated through uh, food, but also fear. So then, uh, and, and that's, you know, people remember the sultanate period in that way. But then when they talked about the socialist period, they, people would also talk a lot about food, and fear. And this was because the socialists had introduced subsidized imported foods. So so, this was a time when Sokutrans were uh, first, you know, first started eating things like rice and drinking tea and sugar. And uh, so they were getting more foods, but it was also very much their relationship to these foods were very mediated through the state. And they were afraid of uh, when government, anytime a government official would come into the baddie, into the countryside because oftentimes they were coming to uh, take the children to like, there was a school for nomadic Bedouin and Sukutra's talk about being afraid that they were going to be kidnapped to go to school, that their kids were going to be kidnapped. So, uh, so they were, this was, you know, so that was one way of talking about the, still about the socialists in terms of food and fear. But then even in the unity era, when, uh, when Sukutra became more integrated into a uh, unified Republic of Yemen uh there is another concern of kind of the the concern with food because the food, a lot of the food subsidies were removed and uh Sokutians were experiencing more price gouging uh the the state also developed a, a whole series of uh asphalt and paved roads throughout the island and um and these roads were a way you know all of this was supposed to bring uh change and development. And in many cases, they were very helpful. The roads would allow sequiturins to go more easily to the hospital, of course, more quickly. But in in one poem, uh, one of the clever goats from the Badia from the countryside points out that uh, roads, of course, lead to markets and markets are a place or a venue for slaughter. So there was a kind of a fear of what all these developments would bring and what these literally these inroads and these new roads would bring. So in all of these transformations between these various different uh, states, I found that there was this one unifying thread, which was that each interaction with a different state was mediated by food, but marked by fear and threatened by either a literal famine uh, or food insecurity or a more metaphorical kind of slaughter that is opening to new markets and, uh, and the threats that come with that.
1: mm mm-hmm. Uh, I found really chapter three and chapter four of, of interest uh, to environmental studies, I would say, and the literature you engage with and the context you present the case and uh, resembles in many cases, cases in East Africa, uh, imposing wilderness or in South Asia as well. Um, So in chapter three, when the environment arrived in chapter four, arrested development, you, uh, analyze uh, the the development and conservation projects that they were brought between 1996 and 2013, which resulted in the island (coughs) inscription as a UNESCO Natural World Heritage Site. Um, In your assessment, why the environment as a project and a concept failed to mobilize Socotra's pastoral community so dependent on their natural surroundings and how the brutalization of of the environment, let's say, uh, polarized the community.
2: So, Kutrin's, um, So they they. I yes, I, I call the chapter when the environment arrived. And what I mean by that is, Sekutrens so referred to uh, there are a series of integrated conservation development projects, and but all of them are referred to Sekutrens so as the Mashur al Mashur al biyah So the environmental project. And for short, they would call them albia, the environment. And so people would talk about, you know, say things like when the environment arrived, meaning when these projects arrived on the island. But they also, it became clear to me that they were also talking about this concept of the environment because uh, apparently Sucutri doesn't actually have a word for the environment uh, in, in in the Sucutri language. So here you have pastoralists who are, very dependent on their climate and the the grasses, the grazing, their animals, the trees. Uh, Secutrans had depended on trees for uh, medicinal reasons, um, and so they're they're very attuned to the natural world around them, uh, but ha- didn't really. Uh, objectify it as such as this one thing that we in English call the environment. Uh, And so I, and, and, you know, and just a small example of this is I was, I was kind of driving. And so the environment was introduced as, uh, so the Scuttrins had to be taught about the environment, even though this is something that they had long lived with in a way that was uh, somewhat New, but also objectified and commodified, and therefore a little bit alienated. So people would, in these training sessions, uh, pastoralists would be taught things like, um, you know, this environment is important because you have all these plants that don't occur anywhere else in the world, and you have birds that don't that are endemic that are not present anywhere else in the world. And you are like the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean, which earns X amount in terms of tourism. And so you could earn that much money, too. So they were being taught to think of their environment in terms of being valuable relative to other places, uh, but also for kind of the purpose of monetization and capitalism uh, in a way that they that was new and a little bit alien to them. And then also seeing the environment, therefore, as something that was that which was of interest to tourists and able to be commodified. So I I don't uh, mention this in the book, but I was driving along one day with some friends in a car and somebody threw a Pepsi can out of the window. And I said, oh, wait, wait, the BIA, the environment. And and the passenger said, well, but this isn't the environment. This is this is just a kind of a an oasis that's a little bit dirty. This is where people had regularly thrown trash. Uh, you know, this is not the environment. And what he meant by that is this is not the picturesque places where the tourists come to see the dragon's blood trees or to take photographs. So in that messaging of this concept of the environment, they were the message that they were getting was the environment is that which can be capitalized or that which must be protected because people outside care about it or find it interesting or important. And so this was alienating, but also um, they didn't see themselves so much reflected in the projects. So uh, the projects employed a few Sukutrans, um, but primarily there were international um, scientists, experts, or uh, Yemenis from the mainland. Uh, They didn't really uh, utilize Sukutri language. So again, all these concepts, I mean, like protected area, Uh, environment. These were all Arabic terms. Uh, So they were, and it was uh, conservationists who were coming in and doing these studies and then telling Secutrians, for instance, why certain things were certain uh, species were valuable, endemic, important, but without using, without really being able to put to use Secutri traditional ecological knowledge or practices uh, not using Sakutri language, and also really not uh, using either even the language of Islam. So, uh, you know, it could have gone both ways. People could have actually tried to um, to shore up, to, to start with the base of Sikotri, uh practice and knowledge, and to try and uh, uh, to k- encourage these kind of traditional ecological practices. Uh, or they could have uh talked a little bit more about um ways of thinking about um the environment in an in a in a religious sense, uh, but both of these were kind of left to the side for a more scientific approach uh that that seemed very alien uh, on the one hand or commodified uh on the other.
1: Mm-hmm. I found that, that really interesting that the scientific let's say discourse did not really translate well in the society. And that led maybe to the politicization of of the situation. Um, uh, Now we move to the cultural part uh, of this equation. In Chapter 5, Reorienting Heritage. I find the chapter very interesting. Um, So uh, if you can briefly sketch the formation of the Sohgatran diaspora and the Arab Gulf state that you mentioned earlier, and how it, uh, as you say, sought to denature and reorient Sukhotran heritage by shifting the focus from nature to culture, from Sukhotran, sorry, to Arab descent, from Indian Ocean hybridity to genealogical purity, and from the Yemeni uh, nation to the transnational Gulf.
2: Yeah, that's quite a sentence. I won't go through all of that because it's in the book, but... Um, Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier this migration connection. I mean, according to the last official census in Yemen, which was taken in 2004, uh, about 10% of Sukutrans, well, uh, in terms of uh, then uh, the last census had 43,000 Sukutrans living on the island. And then if that's true, then more than 10% would have been living abroad in Oman, UAE, uh, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. Um, So it's actually quite a significant uh, percentage of Sukutrans who live in the Arab Gulf states. And, uh, this occurred, uh, in my book, I talk about different ways of these migrations. Um, primarily, uh, uh much of this was economics. So you had a lot of men who are involved in seas as working as seasonal labor migrants on pearling vessels, um, or going, uh, you know, originally, or later going to work as unskilled labor migrants, uh, in the Gulf, uh, um, after, you know, um, uh, in a new kind of, um, uh, petro economies. Uh, and in fact, uh, British officers at the time often commented on the the shortage of labor for their own projects because there were so many Sukkotrans at sea or working abroad. Uh, and then I also mentioned some of the women who had been deported or banished as witches who would find their way to or then the Trucial States and marry into these Sukkotran communities living in the Gulf. Um And then you also had a number of Sukhutrans fleeing the island in the late 60s, early 70s, because they were afraid of the socialist government. So hundreds of Sukhutrans left the island at that time, and then were not able to go back until uh, after the Yemeni Civil War in 1994, but really after 1999, when it was possible to fly there more easily. Uh, And then so that led to a new kind of connections between the diaspora and uh, the islanders, which is... You had, um, say, brothers who were living one in Socotra one in uh, in Oman, for instance, and their children, uh, the cousins, had never met each other uh, until they were young adults uh, with this new opening of the island, uh, and then would uh, uh, there was a lot of um, connection again through marriage. So a lot of the uh, the women on the island would marry their cousins, their or their you know their relatives or, or, or family, friends living in the Gulf. So Sukutras really relied on these connections for first uh, remittances, for aid, for assistance, for food assistance throughout the years. Um, but it also then... And so the diaspora has a really privileged place in Socotra because they're so important for the economic security of people in Socotra. But they also then... Um, were very invested not just economically but also ideologically in trying to define and determine these debates around secretion heritage identity culture and the past and and one thing to think about is this diaspora because they had not been able to return from the 70s to the late 1990s uh had actually not lived during, had not experienced the socialist state and had not experienced really the benefits of it. That is when uh, compulsory, you know, uh, uh, public schooling, which was compulsory, uh, kind of uh, subsidized foods, uh, better medical care. And so the, the older members of the diaspora tended to be twi- quite nostalgic for the Sultanate period, which was the Sukutra they had known when they had left. And, uh, whereas the people on the Island had moved on from that and had also gone through this different kind of system, um, and, and new ways of, of thinking about themselves. And so, uh, that's where there was really a kind of a tension developing between, uh, the, the the people in the diaspora who felt that, um, that they wanted to have more input into, uh, they wanted to, t- to their story of what Sukutra was, uh, was a bit more conservative and nostalgic and more closely linked to the Sultanate period, uh, than was the identifications of Sukutrans who had stayed on the island during all of that period. Uh, so, and, and that led to, you know, quite some tension, especially in around issues about, uh, I mentioned earlier about, um, how to deal with the fact of the sultan's kins and and family members having been executed, uh, which, uh, some of the diasporic, uh, members of the diaspora still felt were necessary to, uh, to, um, to kind of, uh, uh, to deal with and people on the island wanted, were really wanted to move on from that.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and you pursue these tensions in the last chapter, Heritage in the Time of Revolution. Um, so in this period, how did the islanders uh, mobilize cultural heritage uh, during the Yemeni Revolution? And what are some of the tensions between their cultural linguistic politics and that of the Yemeni nation state, given that it's quite you know, rich when it comes to uh, linguistic minorities, religious, even racial um, so, how do you see these tensions playing out during these years?
2: So, um, as I so I said earlier, that they Saqqatran started um, kind of promoting their heritage, mobilizing it. Uh, they were very influenced by uh, what was happening in the Gulf in terms of heritage production and preservation. So, in Abu Dhabi. Uh, uh, you had the uh, the Millions Poet, which was a very popular television uh, show, uh, bringing in uh, Nabeti poets from all around the region to perform poetry in terms of a contest. And so, again, it was it was members of the Sukutran diaspora who had been watching this and said to people on the island, why don't you do the same thing and we'll send money to help fund this? So Sukutrans began um, these quite uh, involved uh five to 10 day long poetry contest in 2008 on the island that continued every year until 2012. And, uh, and during this, and, and this was a way uh, for them to, and it was, it was a very new kind of way of, of presenting poetry. So instead of just outside at a wedding or at a gathering of people for a social event, uh, poetry was staged and became part of a performance and a contest. And, uh, and again, this also, um, had the effect of, of making people feel, uh, the, the Sukutrians who had grown up being told that it was shameful to speak Sukutri, that because it was not Arabic, it was not the, the language that's enshrined in the Yemeni constitution or the language of the Quran. Um, they, you know, they, were, they felt that uh, this was something in, in official sites that they were not even allowed to speak Sukutri so they'd grown up with this one understanding and then suddenly were performing Sukutri language poetry on stage and people were earning uh, prizes for this. Uh, that shift made them, you know, think about their own uh, linguistic diversity. And as you mentioned, linguistic diversity and uh, cultural diversity and environmental diversity are uh, very much linked. And so they were able to think, you know, we have this environmental diversity, but we also have um, linguistic and ethnic. Uh, we are ling- we are linguistic and ethnic minorities, but that's not something to be ashamed of. This is something that we should be able to celebrate. And so this that period, uh, as I, I use the word empowerment before, that gave people this new sense of uh, of pride in uh, in their own diversity. And then during, and so what was uh, quite uh, amazing for me to see is that uh, that translated into actual political action, uh, which then was stalled because everything that's happened since. But during the national dialogue conference that happened in Yemen in 2013, uh, the Sukkutrens and the Mahris who went and, and took part in that actually were able to uh, to convince. Uh, uh, other, the other people uh, taking, you know, in place and part in that to uh, to include a new article in the draft in the new in the draft constitution for a new Yemeni constitution that would recognize, pay special attention to Mahri and the Sukutri languages as uh, important languages that are uh, part of the Yemeni nation. So within a 10-year span, we had people who'd been ashamed to speak in public to uh, going in and and writing, you know, adding an amendment to the constitution that this language, in addition to environment, needed to be protected. And so this is where, as I mentioned earlier, talking about, it wasn't just that um, people's turn to heritage gave them a sense of empowerment. It really did, in you know, revolutionize the way that they thought about themselves as ethnic and linguistic minorities within the state of Yemen during what was, you know, during the revolution, during what was a revolutionary period where people were able to um, make new claims on the state and to think more broadly about the value of of not, you know, the the original Yemeni constitution, like many constitutions in Arab states. Had, um, had stated that Yemen is an Arab state, uh, that Islam is the, the religion of the state, that Arabic is the language. And so it was an opening for people to think differently about all of the racial, religious, linguistic diversity that actually is present in the Arabian Peninsula. And it was a very um, hopeful moment. And, uh, and then, unfortunately, uh, the war started. And so... Uh, you know, we don't know if people can go back to, uh, to, to celebrating and including all of the, and recognizing all of this diversity in this area. But, um, but I think that's what, um, probably needs to happen for people to be able to heal from what's going on today.
1: Yeah. Uh, Listening to you, uh, I think of competing maybe visions for the island, so do you think they are competing visions and and how in your assessment, these competing visions will contribute to the island's future?
2: Well, so when I, yeah, I mean, there are competing, when I wrote, when I finished the book, I was thinking really about the competing visions in terms of uh, heritage. So uh, at that point already in early 2018, uh, there were new, these poetry contests were getting new funding, uh, from, uh, from, uh, backers, the United Arab Emirates and other places. And so they became a little bit, what had been grassroots, uh, heritage production became, began to look a little bit more like the kind of heritage that you see in, in the United Arab in Abu Dhabi, and Dubai, that is, uh, heritage festivals, uh, you can, uh, kind of, um, villages and things like that, that are a little bit more, uh, large scale, a little bit more top down, have more funding, a little bit more of a state narrative. And, uh, and so that, that was one way that heritage production could go. That is, it would be taken, you know, it would not be so much, uh, kind, um, uh, done at the end, you know, individual individuals who are not, um, with very little funding, trying to debate this among themselves, but it would become more of a state project. Uh, And then another vision was that uh, you would still have these these large scale conservation projects. Uh, So even in 2013, the global environment facility was funding a new conservation development project on the Island that was actually trying to incorporate more secretary language and to uh, kind of, you know, include Sukutran's, in a way that spoke back to some of these earlier criticisms. Um, but, you know, the one, so these visions were on the one hand for kind of a, a more state orchestrated cultural heritage versus projects that were still primarily conservationist and environmental. Um, however, uh, because of the war and a lot of uh, NGOs leaving during that time, there was also still a bit of a, there's a vacuum and so even with everything that's been going on in Yemen, uh, there are Sukhutrans working actively on their own to protect uh, their archaeological sites, to record and document their stories, oral histories, uh, their material culture. So, you know, this, what what we see is that in fact, when you, when you allow people, when there's a bit of room for people to, Uh, to do the work themselves, then there is a sense of ownership and, uh, and it can lead to hopeful advances. Now, um, you know, there's also today uh, when I, when I completed the book, I had also mentioned that Socotra was the one area of Yemen that had been relatively unscathed from the war uh, as there hadn't been any fighting there, but it had been very much affected by cyclones that had ripped through the island. Uh, And, and, that unfortunately has changed since the publication of the book. So uh, now there have been just uh, in the past couple of weeks there have been clashes between supporters for the, of the Southern Transitional Council or the Army of the Southern Transitional Council and the Hadi government. And so you now have also very different competing political visions. That is questions about whether um, Socotra will become an independent authority, whether it will become part of a secessionist South Yemen. Uh, some people might, uh, few people want full autonomy. Uh, I think the are, um, uh, but they are divided about, um, what their future will look like in terms of the new Yemen to emerge. And unfortunately this is actually, um, I think this is probably what, uh, would bother my Sikutrin interlocutors the most, which is that the fabric of their society is being torn apart, um, by, uh, this political fighting as well.
1: That's really unfortunate, and we will keep an eye on this recent development. The book is very well written and organized and beautifully illustrated, and I would like to share uh, some of that with the listeners. If you can, please uh, read a passage from the book.
2: Okay, well, thank you. I've spoken for a long time, so I'm going to select what I hope is a somewhat short passage. And I wanted to give something that had... uh, Uh, that included the voice of one of my main interlocutors and his name is Fahed. So given my interlocutor's evaluation of heritage as a scarce resource, a resource depleted by modernization, extracted by foreigners and exploited by the diaspora, it is not surprising that the Secretary Society for Heritage and History also sought to stake its claim to it. However, Cognizant of the damage that the already disparate projects could inflict, Fahed argued for a more coordinated response. When I ran into him a few weeks later at the Conservation Development Project office, where he was preparing a presentation on the role of the society, he took up the metaphor of dismemberment again. This time, it was heritage itself that was being torn asunder. Heritage is like a buried body that everyone's trying to revive, he told me, but they're all pulling at different pieces. One is pulling at the ear, saying that this is the most important part. The other is pulling at the leg. What's going to happen in the end is that each person will dig up a part of the body with a part here and another part there, but they won't be able to reassemble it. Like Al-Farizdak's slaughtered camel, Sukutra's cadaverous heritage was being cleaved apart by the many poets and experts competing for the choicest piece. Implicit in Fahid's comments is a nostalgia for a once magnificent corpus and the desire for a sovereign society to reinvigorate it in full. But for all his enthusiasm for reassembling the body, there are pieces, impurities, that even the Secretary General of the Sukutra Society for Heritage and History would prefer to leave behind. The Society's conception of Sukutra's heritage excluded two forms of cultural practice in particular unorthodox beliefs and customs consigned to the ignorant past, and African dance and music relegated to the ignoble other.
1: Beautiful. This is really a beautiful analogy also for the situation. Um, well, Natalie, I really enjoyed this conversation, but we've taken a lot of your time. And I would like to ask you about our, uh, your current projects or what you hope to work on.
2: Well, yeah, so I mentioned I'm now working on, uh, I'm back to working on refugees, which is what I first thought I was going to do in in early 2000. And so uh, I um, am writing about the refugees from Yemen who've made their way to the Horn of Africa. Uh, uh, I started in Somaliland, but I've now focusing primarily on Djibouti. And that's because in northern Djibouti in a town called Obok, there are actually two camps side by side. There is the uh, a UNHCR camp for refugees from Yemen across the street from a center for African migrants, primarily Ethiopians who are still, who are heading uh, until the uh, pandemic, uh, which has now stopped this. But, uh, but even as recently as, as January, we're still walking daily across Djibouti, crossing the Red Sea and heading to Yemen to go find work in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so I have been very interested in the encounters in this, in, in this region between the African migrants going to Yemen and what are actually a lot of African Yemen uh, refugees having come from Yemen, which raises a bunch of questions about the distinctions that we make between migrants and refugees and also Africans and Arabs in this interstitial setting. So this is the, this is what I'm uh, hoping to write this year. Uh, and uh, you know, and as you asked earlier on, I'll have to find a way to continue the fieldwork. In light of travel restrictions, but also now very much thinking about how the pandemic is affecting people who are you know, living in this very, very difficult situation uh, and, uh, and feel that they're either forced to move or that they are stuck in an untenable situation.
1: This, this is very pressing and you are one brave anthropologist to keep taking on these challenging projects. Um, we will be looking forward uh, to this project and thank you so much for giving us the time to learn about your book today. And Thank, thank you so you, much, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Islands of Heritage, Conservation and Transformation in Yemen, published by Stanford University Press in 2018. This is your host, Ahmed El mazmi Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.